Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. We are continuing our sermon series looking at the Gospel of Mark and the passage we're going to be studying today is printed in your bulletin, the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Both of the stories we have before us today um, reference um, confusion and argument and disagreement about the Sabbath. Um, We don't have time today to get into all the different aspects and dynamics of the Sabbath. If you weren't here this past summer, I wasn't here. We were on sabbatical, but the pastors preached through a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. On July 9th, Tripp preached on the Fourth Commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I wish I would have properly prepared to get that as a number one resource in your bulletin. If you weren't here, or even if you were... Um, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. In my opinion, it's the best sermon on the Sabbath that I've ever heard. And it was absolutely phenomenal. And he digs into a ton of questions that may arise about why is the Sabbath issue, the number one issue that Jesus and the religious leaders seem to fight and argue about. It's kind of shocking for us. We don't really think that much about the Sabbath. We would assume it would be more about other commandments that were being broken, but that is the thing they tend to argue about the most. So July 9th, the story of the Sabbath is on our podcast. I highly recommend it. Um, Let me pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the great privilege of being able to gather together as your people to worship you. Our hearts need this so badly to come here to be spiritually nourished through fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs so that the word of Christ may dwell richly in our hearts by faith, to open up your word, which is living and active, has the ability to transform our hearts, to come boldly before your throne of grace, to receive help and mercy in our time of need, um, even through prayer, and to feast um, at your table. We are thankful for all these different means of grace, means by which your Holy Spirit really helps us feel your affection for us. And I pray that you will um, quiet our restless hearts this morning, help us to receive from you. We know throughout your word you tell us that you oppose the proud, but that you give grace to the humble. Um, We are not naturally humble, clearly. That's why you remind us of that over and over again, so... We pray for the gift of humility from your spirit, not in a way that leads to self-loathing, but rather that invites us um, into the freedom and joy of not focusing on ourselves all the time, but focusing on you and our neighbor. And so send forth your word to accomplish your purpose. Thank you that it never returns void. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those that were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence 
which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him about how they might destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, one, things that may, one of the things that may jump out um, consistently is, what is going on with the Pharisees? Like, why are they always so upset and angry with Jesus? And if you read the Gospels, what you'll notice is the Pharisees um, are not really painted in a, in a positive light. Jesus, at one point in Matthew 23, calls them sons of hell. They were judgmental, arrogant, prideful, critical, harsh, condemning, not hospitable, focused so often on their performance in condemning others. And so it should lead us to ask the question, like, what is the deal with the Pharisees? Well, in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you, one of which is that the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Over and over again, one of the primary ways that God's people were not faithful, not obedient to his commands is they did not keep and honor the Sabbath. Ezekiel 22, verse 8, speaking to his people, you have despised my holy things and you have profaned my Sabbaths. Now I bring this up because the Pharisees never set out to become sons of hell. They had originally good desires. We as God's people have gotten ourselves in these situations time and time again, now currently being governed and ruled by a wicked pagan Roman empire because we were not obedient. Therefore, we have to be serious about obedience. This was their simple, logical way of thinking. But what was the result? They became fo so focused on their behavior, what they thought was their obedience to God's law and commands, that their hearts became hardened and shriveled, even more so than this man's withered hand. Now, I bring this up because this could easily be us. It would be unbelievably foolish and naive and arrogant to think we could never be like those stupid Pharisees. What is their problem? I hear on a regular basis, Matt, the progressive, liberal, woke agenda is ruining in our country. LGBTQ, gender confusion, government overreach, breakdown of the family, celebration of abortion. Why don't you speak to all of these issues that are happening, that are being crammed down our throat, that are clearly at odds to God's good moral law? Now, the people that bring those things to me are not crazy. The Pharisees weren't crazy. The things that were happening in their culture all around them were not in accordance with God's good and moral law. 
As a result, there is no flourishing. The things in our country that are happening will not and cannot lead to flourishing. Anything that is opposed to God's good moral law cannot lead to flourishing. The Pharisees weren't crazy. When we see those things, we're not crazy. God says in Isaiah 5, Woe to those that call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. But then notice what he says in the very next verse. But woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. See, the problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they were misinterpreting the wickedness that was around them, how it was out of accord with what God had um, ordered and commanded to lead to human flourishing individually in families and in societies. But they were so focused and and convinced they were wise in their own eyes that even though they could see what was really happening around them, they couldn't see their own hearts and how much they needed a savior. We must be very, very, very careful that this doesn't happen to us. In our Bible study on Wednesday morning, Ryan Stanley, our new men's ministry coordinator, was teaching in 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 4, Paul is warning the church that there will be those that depart the faith because they will commit themselves to deceitful teaching and demonic teaching. And he says, and then they'll take up all their time, you know, arguing about irrelevant and silly myths. And Ryan said, hey, guys, none of those false teachers set out to become false teachers. None of them said, hey, once we get in the church, let's start promoting the teaching of demons. How wrong and arrogant and foolish it would be to think that this can't be us. It's a strong warning to the church. When you are wise in your own eyes, by definition, you won't know it. I'm not saying our concern about things that are happening in our society um, aren't legit concerns, but they are concerns, first and foremost, that should drive us to our knees to pray. And I I really want to emphasize this because, again, we're, we're moving into an election season where the rhetoric is going to be so loud and so toxic. And politics matter. Policy matters. Don't misunderstand me and say it doesn't matter at all. We shouldn't care. But when you find yourself being so focused on these things and condemning people that are opposed to you, oh, you're, you're in such danger. And that's why Jesus was so angry. Even the emotional language that we're given of, he looked at them and he was grieved and angry at their hardness of heart. Dan, Dan Allender in his book, Leading with the Lamp, says, doubt is the context for surrender. It doesn't mean that we need to doubt every single thing we believe But when we find ourselves being so fired up and so angry and so triggered about things, we need to say, Lord, oh, please help me to slow down and trust that you're the one true king and that you're not in panic mode about what's happening all around us. The Pharisees noticed their their whole posture and behavior. When Jesus is walking with his disciples at the end of chapter 2 and when he ends up in the synagogue, it shows us that their posture was not one of doubt or curiosity or even interest. It says that they were watching him. They were closely examining what he was doing so that they could accuse him. They were clearly wise in their own eyes. No humility, no curiosity, and ultimately, no love. They were so focused on trying to catch Jesus breaking one of their man-made rabbinical rules about the Sabbath that when this man had his hand healed, they couldn't even celebrate They couldn't even say, hey, man, congratulations, we're so excited, quick hug. Now we need to argue with Jesus. They immediately run out and are like, we got to destroy this guy. 
See, see, that's how you know that you're in trouble. That's how you know that really beneath all your religious performance, you're really just a legalistic Pharisee is because you're so focused on the rules that you forget the main purpose and intent of God's law, which is what? Love. Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you're so focused on relating to God based on keeping rules and regulations on your behavior, what inevitably happens is that you lose the actual intent and bullseye of God's law, which is to love God and love your neighbor. And even here on the Sabbath, the whole purpose of God giving the Sabbath to his people was to help them rest, to lead to restoration. This summer when the pastors preached through the Ten Commandments, I loved that they called the Ten Commandments the framework for flourishing. It was good, loving commands that God had given that enabled God's people to flourish. The Sabbath was a gift that God gave his people that had been turned into a dutiful burden. The rabbis in Jesus' day had come up with 39 different types of activity that you could not do on the Sabbath that constituted work, one of which was reaping grain, like going out in your field and turning it into another day on the Sabbath to work to try to earn income. And so the disciples turn that around. The Pharisees turn it around when they see Jesus' disciples who are hungry and in need, grabbing some of the grain and then mashing it in their hands so they can eat it. And they want to come at Jesus with this. And then in verse 25, you know, he slaps them in the face when he says, have you not read what David did when he was in need and hungry? Bringing up to the Pharisees who prided themselves on knowing God's law and knowing all the stories, saying, have you never actually read what would have been an immediate, like, drop kick to these guys? And notice he highlights David and his friends were in need and they were hungry. When God's law says that you are to love your neighbors yourself, I say this often because it's so convicting. Tim Keller says that means you should seek to meet the physical felt needs of others with the same energy, eagerness, and joy that you meet your own. Think about all those Pharisees that are watching Jesus. If any of them were hungry and in need, would they not seek to meet that need by getting something to eat? If any of them were physically deformed and had a sickness and were suffering, would they not want that to be healed? Of course they would. But here now, when these things are happening, they can't even acknowledge the dignity of what's happening, that they're so focused on this guy's breaking one of the rules. And it's one of the rules that I look to to help me try to merit favor with God. See, what this really is doing is this, Jesus is exposing two different paradigms. The paradigm of religion versus Christianity. See, everyone in the world essentially says, if there is a God, the only way we can relate to him and and have salvation and go to heaven in some capacity. There's a million variations, but it must be based on being good. If there's a guide and you're going to be in a relationship with him, you have to be good. Therefore, you better be good. In other words, the formula is simply, I have to obey and be good so I can be accepted, so I can be saved in some form or fashion. But Christianity, it's not just a tweak. It's a completely different paradigm. Jesus says... Your hearts are so deceitful, you have no hope of obeying and earning and meriting favor. That's why I've come, the righteous one, the righteous king and Messiah, to perfectly obey in your place. 
And when you're accepted by me, receiving my perfect righteousness, then you obey out of that with a relaxed heart, not one that is constantly focused on how am I doing. And the Sabbath command shows up perfectly as an example of which paradigm are you living out of. If you're living out of, I have to keep the rules well enough to be accepted, then you're going to focus on the Sabbath and every other command and say, tell me the exact details. Tell me exactly what I can and can't do with pertaining to grain or cutting my grass or doing whatever it is. Tell me what I can or can't do. Versus if you're resting in Christ, you're like, Lord, thank you for an unbelievable gift. Thank you that you as my good, loving, and wise Savior command me to rest one day a week to help remind me that, that I really am a part of your kingdom. And my identity is so much greater than what I can produce or earn or merit in my job, in this culture. Religious mindset will always come at the Sabbath and say, this is an opportunity for me to earn approval through my behavior. I need to know exactly what to do. And, and when that happens, the easy way you'll know it, the easy diagnostic is that there won't be love, there won't be joy. You won't be able to look at these commands as an invitation to flourish. Instead, it will always inevitably lead to a sense of frustration. Now, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, any of us at any moment may be in this death trap. But luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life, this can be Sabbath keeping or anything else, when we find that our religious life makes us feel that we're good, above all, that we're better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. And this is why Jesus says, you guys need to understand that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a good gift that God gave to his people. He even goes a step further and says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now this would have been a much more jaw-dropping statement and action than healing the man's hand or them eating grain on the Sabbath. Jesus isn't just claiming to be a teacher who has a deeper understanding of God's law than they do. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he kept saying, you guys are so confused. You've heard it said that you shall not murder, but the true intent of that command is if you look at someone with anger, you've murdered them in your heart. He doesn't do that here. He doesn't say, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. Let me give you a better understanding. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying is Sabbath really is an invitation to deep rest, to deep peace. The term Sabbath is a synonym for shalom, a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life. When Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he is explaining that I alone am the one that can give your hearts rest. I alone am the one that can give you the peace and security that you're seeking through your desperate attempts to obey well enough in order to be approved. If we step back and consider the question, what do the Pharisees ultimately want? What do workaholics ultimately want? What do the most critical people you ever interact with ultimately want? The answer is the same across the board. Security and rest. That's what they want. That's what's driving all the frantic behavior was driving all the criticism. Everyone wants shalom.
a deep sense of peace that leads to flourishing in every area of life. For those of you that know me, you're not surprised to know that I struggle to rest. Growing up in my home in part, this isn't an excuse of blaming it on someone else, but growing up in part um, in my home and with my dad especially, the number one sin, what kind of broke people into the categories of good and bad, righteous, unrighteous, was are you lazy or do you work hard? And a part of that is my dad grew up in such a broken home, first one in his family to ever go to college, went to marry my mom. My granddad said, you're essentially not good enough, like, like you're kind of worthless white trash. And so he was hell-bent on, I'm going to prove my worthiness by working hard. And to this day, if my mom was sitting here, she would say, I think the reason he died so young is he worked himself to death that he constantly was working and working and working. And I would see him um, really uh, approve and, and celebrate us, his kids, when we worked hard and, and condemn others that he felt like were lazy. And it, it's just so deeply ingrained in me. It's so hard for me to rest. So last Saturday, um, one of my buddies in the neighborhood pulled up to pick up my daughter Kate to go play with his daughter. And it's like, whatever, 9.30 in the morning. I walk out in the driveway. I'm like, yo, what's up? He's like, what's up, man? What you got going on today? And I'm like, what about you? And he goes, man, I got a super long list of things to do. And he's like, I'm trying to get fired up and motivated to do them. And he lists all the things he needs to knock out. And um, I said, well, what do you want to do? And he goes, bro, what I want to do is just rest. He's like, but the problem is, is I think if I knock all these things out and work hard enough, I'll ultimately be able to rest. But that laundry list of what I need to do is never done. In other words, the, the ground continues to produce thorns and thistles. It's never, ever enough, right? And I'm sitting here, and, and because we're friends, I know he's being honest. This isn't a setup. It's not like my wife called him and said, say this to my husband. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you're speaking directly to my heart. Like I work and I work and I work and I work because the thing I want is to get to a place of rest. I don't just like and enjoy work for the sake of work. And a part of what Jesus is saying is, whether it's a religious paradigm or how it shows up in your life is you are desperately searching for the thing I came to give you as a gift. You can't ever achieve it on your own. And if you keep thinking you can, if you keep thinking that if I just work hard enough, if I just do enough, accomplish enough, then you're always inevitably going to feel a sense of despair, frustration, and anger. On our men's retreat about seven or eight years ago, John Pierce, who works at the Barnabas Center, came and spoke. And his main point throughout the weekend was the rest that you were made for will never, ever come by more vacation. It won't come in retirement. The rest that your heart longs for only comes from hearing your heavenly Father's voice of approval spoken over you. You are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love with whom I am well pleased. That is not possible to attain if you live out of a pharisaical religious paradigm. If I can just do enough, maybe one day I will be accepted. It will never work. If it was possible for it to work, our Lord Jesus would have had no need to come and take on flesh and obey God's law perfectly on our account. Now, you may be here this morning and say, you know what, Matt, this is interesting um, information about people that struggle with being religious, but that's not me. I don't live out of a religious framework. I never sweat the Sabbath. I do whatever I want every day of the week. So this doesn't really apply to me, and I would say with Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend. 
the reality is even if you don't think you're operating out of a religious paradigm, if you are not receiving and resting in the finished work of Jesus, you are working to find rest in some form or fashion. This may show up in your career. The fact that you're utterly obsessed with getting to that next rung, that next position of authority, with seeing your bank account grow to some number that you think, if I can just get there, that number will give me rest. Maybe it's your performance um, as a mom or how your kids turn out. Maybe it is the way that you look physically. If I can just look a certain way. You know, there's that new show, things on ABC, The Golden Bachelor. And you don't like to, like, text me later, guys, like, why are you watching that show? I've never watched it. <laughs> but I see the commercials in between the college football games every weekend. And, you know, the, the, the focus of this show, The Golden Bachelor, is a 72-year-old man, a widower, um, who's trying to, you know, meet a woman. And it, it absolutely, every time I see the commercials, it absolutely breaks my heart. Because you have all of these women in their 60s and 70s, um, and their entire face just doesn't even look real. Because our culture is saying that you can't ever grow old. You can't age. If you get a wrinkle, you better zap it. You better Botox it immediately. And, and it's just it's heartbreaking. We talked about this in our men's Bible study in 1 Timothy 2. when he, he said women don't have to adorn themselves constantly with, with costly jewels and everything else. And just the damning pressure our culture puts on women to look a certain way. Like you can't get old, you can't have gray hair, you can't wrinkle. It, it, it's just crushing. It, it's never, there's never a, 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 an amount of um, dieting, working out, cosmetic surgery that's ever going to lead to immortality. We all are going to get old and die. Like that, that's something that's just going to happen to everybody. And our culture says, oh, no, this is something that you can't allow to happen. Maybe it's I'm looking to find rest by having the right social group, by having enough friends. There's, there's something that is driving each of us, a work beneath the work. And, and you'll know because it'll be the thing that keeps you up at night. It'll be the thing that you think about most effortlessly when you have nothing else you have to think about. The thing that drives you. If I could just have that, accomplish that, get this, fix that, do that, maybe, just maybe, I can rest. And Jesus says, hey, listen, that noise is never going to go away. You're, this broken and fallen world is constantly going to lie to you and say, this is the thing. This is the new thing you need. But instead, you can come to me. You can come and receive rest for your weary souls. You know, an easy way to think about, you know, kind of a work beneath the work that you obsess over as a society um, to try to earn some sort of status is in sports because it's measurable. You either win the championship or you don't. You score the points or you don't. And so, you know, you could easily make the argument the greatest athlete of all time, the most successful athlete of all time is Michael Jordan. I mean, any of the nonsense now about his LeBron worthy of MJ, I'm like, get that noise out of here. <laughs> but when MJ turned 50, 10 years ago he turned 50, and there was an article in ESPN magazine, and Wright Thompson wrote this feature article, and I love Wright Thompson. And he says, there's no way to measure these things but there's a strong case to be made that Michael Jordan is the most intense competitor on the planet. And then MJ says, I can't help myself. It's an addiction. You asked for this special power to achieve these heights, and now you got it, and you want to give it back, but you can't. And then he says, if I could, then I could breathe. In other words, if I could give back this obsession to have to prove I'm better than others, 
If I could give that away, I could actually breathe. His self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? It's consumed me so much, Jordan says. I'm living with that. I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't know if I could. How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? Later in the article, Thompson goes on to talk about um, at 3 in the morning how everyone in his entourage is asleep and Jordan can't sleep. He hates being alone. He hates nighttime more than any other part of the day because it's too quiet. The psalmist says, in Psalm 4, you have put more joy in my heart than when, they have, when their wine and grain abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you, Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, what Jordan is articulating, honestly, maybe one of the rare times in his life, honestly, in that story, is what goes on in every human heart. The work underneath the work. The work of self-justification a work that will never lead to true rest. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does offer true rest because after his great work of redemption, our Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, on the cross declared, John 19, 30, it is finished. It is finished. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The rest that you are pursuing in every area of your life, you can only ever find in me. Dane Ortland, in the quote on the front of your bulletin, says, All the worry and dysfunction and the resentment are natural fruit of living in a mental universe of law. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest, wholeness, flourishing, shalom. That existential calm that for brief gospel scene moments settles over you and lets you step in out of the storm of, of worksness. You see for a moment that in Christ you are truly invincible. The verdict really is in. Nothing can touch you. He has made you his own and will never cast you out. See, that's the good news and the invitation for all that will receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. We'll never do it perfectly. This is the ongoing battle and struggle of the Christian life. But it is a true invitation that we can come to Jesus our Savior, the Lord of the Sabbath, to receive rest for our souls that we are longing for. But we have to fully receive and rest upon him alone. He is the one true king, and he does not share kingship with anyone else. If you're one of the few in here, when I was earlier talking about the danger of us becoming Pharisees by being so triggered by the wokeness in our society, and you're like, yes, because I identify more progressively, notice at the end of this passage that it says the Pharisees and the Herodians go out together and they plot how to murder Jesus. If you're like, well, what does that even mean? Um, don't throw that away. That is a huge verse given to us. The Pharisees clearly were as far right as you could possibly go. The Herodians were on the other side. The Herodians were all good with Herod, the wicked, evil king that was not promoting the moral law of God in any way. They were progressive. We could label them as liberal, whatever else. The Pharisees and Herodians hated each other until it came to the issue of Jesus. Jesus does not align with either of their agendas. And so I love the way Keller says this. The gospel does not say this would be a pharisaical position. The good are in, the bad are out. Nor the Herodian kind of left-leaning position. The open-minded are in, the judgmental people are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. 
The gospel says people who know they're not better, they're not more open-minded, they're not more moral than anyone else, they are in. The people that think, I'm on the right side of this issue, they are the ones most in danger. So today as we come to this table, as we come to feast on this bread that represents the broken body of Jesus and drink from this cup that represents his shed blood given for the forgiveness of our sins, my encouragement is just for you to ask Jesus, give me humility. Give me humility that comes from you and love for you and love for others. Again, it doesn't mean that the issues that we're concerned about aren't issues and don't matter. But he is concerned with our heart posture and how we relate to our neighbors. It's our practice to come forward and receive the elements from the table, from the people up front distributing. And each of the trays on the inner cluster is real wine. The outer is grape juice. There's gluten-free prepackaged elements. Um, I'd ask you if you will exit if you want to come to the right of your section and then go back to your um, seat and hold it. What we do, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, is proclaim the Lord's death until he comes every time we take this bread and this cup. In other words, that means if you come forward and you're not seeking with integrity to receive and rest upon Jesus alone for your salvation, then you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You're in danger of becoming like the Pharisees who hardened their heart through going through the motions religiously. So nobody wants that. We want you to come and examine the truth claims of Christianity and feel no pressure to pretend at all. And so don't come forward unless you're serious about resting in Christ alone and living for his glory and the good of your neighbor. Let me pray and I'll set these elements apart and then we will come and partake. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope that we have because of the good news of the gospel. Thank you that the law tells our hearts, do this and you can be accepted, but it's never done. But your grace says to us, believe and everything is already done. Thank you that you Invite us to come receive rest for our souls that we desperately need. And so nourish our hearts, we pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen.